Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal government says that despite the planning data, we will receive 4 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of March. It all depends on exactly how much we're going to get out of each vial. We'll talk about that. Retired General Rick Hillier, who is overseeing COVID-19's vaccination rollout here in Ontario, has a new job advising an Ottawa defense company. Can he actually do both jobs? We'll get into that. And Ontario's Minister of Labor is calling for changes to be made to the federal sick leave program. He'll join us on the program. And how is inflation caused by the pandemic stimulus going to come back and bite the middle class? You'd be surprised. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about vaccines. Uh, there was some, well, maybe the best way to describe it is mixed messaging about what was supposed to be happening with the vaccine rollout over the last little while. Uh, the federal government says that despite reports to the contrary, we will be receiving 4 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of March. That was up in the air for a little while yesterday when Global News reported that uh, Pfizer was talking about actually rolling back that number to 3.5 million as opposed to 4. And uh, there seems to be a discrepancy here about how much of the uh, the vaccine is actually going to be in each vial. Uh, Major uh, General Danny Fortan, of course, made the announcement during a technical briefing yesterday. But as Global's Dave Woodard explains, the total number of vaccine doses coming in really depends on how many doses are expected to be in those vials. Major General Fortan says the information is clear. Pfizer has assured us that Canada will uh, receive 4 million doses that they had uh previously indicated by Anmar. However, a working table given to the provinces says that Canada will only receive 3.5 million doses in that same time frame. Fortan says that table provides what he calls a soft number. Those numbers will continue to fluctuate as we have a decision either to go from 5 to 6 doses made by the regulator. He says Pfizer calculates six doses per vial, while Canada only calculates five per vial for now. Health Canada is working to see if it can get six doses out of a vial on a regular basis, and if so, would change its calculation as well. Dave Woodard, Global News. So confused? Well, a lot of people are these days. Let's uh, try to add some clarity to what's been going on for the last 24 hours or so. And uh, welcome, uh, Tim Sly, to the program. Uh, uh, Professor Sly is a professor emeritus at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Let me ask you, first of all, are we getting into a semantics thing here? Five doses in a vial, six doses in a vial? Uh, At the end of the day, are we getting the same amount of vaccine that we were expecting? Yeah, the dose should be a dose. Uh, what they found out in the States, and they communicated this to, uh, to Europe, is that uh, there's actually more than five doses in, a, in one of those bottles. Uh, they figured that, in fact, there's, a, there's a, a, what they call a dead space in every syringe that also has a certain amount. And if you, in fact, add up all the dead spaces, in other words, when you, when you press the, the plunger down on the syringe, there's a certain amount left that never actually leaves the syringe. Normally, people don't worry about that. But in, in the case of something that's so much in demand, it mm-hmm. is worth worrying about. And if you add it up per vial, it actually comes out to another dose, another full dose. So, but you need a different kind of syringe, and I understand that the authorities have ordered some of these more syringes. We just put an extra ripple in the kind of the, the saga that unfolds. This is a, a variation on the theme I thought of about a year ago when we didn't have enough uh, personal protective equipment, and all of a sudden we were scrambling to find this. That uh, this is a, a technological change, I guess, to what we were used to, and and now they're saying, okay, but you have to use these syringes. Is Canada blocking at that, Professor, and saying we don't have them, we're not going to buy them? Uh, or are they simply going to have to acquiesce at some point? 
I think they have. Uh, they've ordered a whole lot. Apparently, there's, there's, there's some at the moment. There's something of 15 to yeah. 20 percent of those syringes are these zero dead space syringes. But they need to order more. Otherwise, there's going to be some of this stuff that's uh, sort of thrown away at the end. A lot of vaccines, which aren't in, in enormously high demand, there is a little bit of extra in the bottom, a little sort of uh, slush factor in the bottom, and nobody really worries about. But in this case, where there's a great demand for it, of course, we need every, every drop, literally every drop. And uh, that's why we're trying to squeeze out that sixth dose. So what's, what Pfizer is saying, really, as I understand it, is that uh, essentially we're going to give you 4,000 doses, but it's going to look as if it comes from three and a half, uh, uh, you know, instead of four to three. It, 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 if you squeeze out every drop, you'll get all the doses you want. So the, when I get my vaccine, wherever that's going to be and whenever that's going to be, that's another thing that seems to be up in the air right now. Uh, I'm more than likely going to be using one of these, these new syringes. Though. That, that's going to be the thing, I guess, going forward, is it? Oh, yeah, for the person receiving the dose. I mean, they'll get one dose. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no question about that. It's just that how many can you squeeze out of a bottle if you really uh, lick the insides and <laughs> get in there, you know, yeah. I feel like you know turning the orange juice carton upside down to make sure you get every drop out of it. So, and go. I can understand that. I mean, this this stuff, as you say, is in demand, and it's not inexpensive. So, I mean, we want to make sure we maximize this. Uh, I'm surprised that we didn't know this right from the outset, though. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those things you overlook. It's been uh, vaccines have been put into arms for the last uh, you know three quarters of a century almost, and uh, nobody really worried about it until they they spotted it. In fact, you get more than uh, more than five doses in a vial. They, they, I guess the company was uh, was thinking, well, you know, we won't worry about the headspace because we never have. And now mm. somebody's saying, look, if you really squeeze this, you get the extra dose out of that. So the company says, okay, we'll do that then. Well, let's let's call the vials six doses per vial instead of five. And there we go, and we'll we'll send you the right number of doses, but a smaller number of vials. Yeah, and that seemed to be one of the things that people were kind of going back and forth on, because when we first heard about this story, about there's actually an extra dose in there, uh, at least one commentator I saw down in the States said, that means we've got even more vaccine than we paid for. And then Pfizer stepped up and said, whoa, 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 just a second. <laughs> now, we're, we're, we're going to cut back here. We're not doing freebies here. It's so, business, eh? Business. It, well, sure. And, and, we, and we tend to forget about that, I guess, don't we, Professor, that you know we're in such a hurry to get this thing developed and get these into people's arms, uh, that Pfizer's a for-profit for company. So Johnson & Johnson, so is Moderna and all these other things. And, and they're looking at their bottom line as well. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, you, you paid for your pound of flesh, you're going to get exactly that and no more, no less. But, uh, mm -hmm. but you've, got, you've got to find a way to get it out of the vial. Are you concerned about the way the program is rolling out? Uh, you know, there seem to be some discrepancies here about timing. Uh, I saw the reporting yesterday, notwithstanding what uh, the Prime Minister said, that people that want the vaccine should probably uh, have been vaccinated, but he figured by maybe late September this year. Uh, there was a report yesterday from uh, one group over in the UK uh, that said because of all these delays, it might actually be mid-2022 before uh, Canadians are at that role. And we're not alone. The, the, the magazine went on to say a number of other companies are in the same boat. Uh, is it is it Pfizer's production techniques? What's what seems to be the delay here, and what's what seems to be the crimp in the in the plan that everybody has developed? I think what it is, the, the thing that answers all of those concerns, and we all have them as well, is that uh, we've never seen a rollout of a vaccination program anywhere like this in the history of uh, history of mankind, uh, humankind, I should say. Uh, simply, it, it's simply the volume of the thing. For example, I, I'm certainly with the people who say that we'll probably be vaccinating well into 2022. And the reason for that is, you just look, for example, at, at Ontario. We've got about 14 to 15 million people in this province. 
Now, to achieve something like a herd immunity, we'd need to, uh, we'd need to vaccinate uh, something like uh, 10, 10 million. So 10 million people with two doses, it's 20 million doses need to be got out there. If we're aiming at, uh, shall we say, next, this, uh, this coming October, end of October, about 10 months, shall we say, uh, that's going to be 2 million doses a month which works out to about 68,000 doses a day. Now, that is a tremendous amount. We can do it, but I don't think people have really looked at the logistics of getting that done. 68,000 doses a day, every day of the week, uh, all the way around. Uh, can we do it? I don't know, but it's, it's a challenge. I don't think we probably will be able to meet the, the end of this coming, the, the end of this year. It'll be in the well into the next year, I think. To that point, though, and, and, and let's work on Pfizer because that seems to be the one of choice, although Moderna's out there too, and we're told that there could be others that are going to get the uh, the thumbs up uh, shortly. But Pfizer was the, the problematic one because of the cold storage uh, situation, so it, it's not as if they can drive up to some small town in northern Ontario and start giving this out. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a transportation concern with that particular one, which I guess is going to uh, make the rollout and, and those numbers that you were talking about much more difficult to, uh, to attain. Absolutely. Uh, and really, when you look at it logically, uh, you're going to be limiting fights really to the large centers, the big hospitals who have these industrial mm-hmm. uh, freezers fitted. Uh, you're not going to see that in uh, Moose Breath, Northern Ontario, because they don't have one for several, you know, hundred kilometers. So uh, it would be, therefore, the other vaccines that are coming along, whether it's J&J or uh, Moderna or even Novavax or something like that, would, would go to these other communities. Yeah, the, uh, the institute I was talking about, the Economic Intelligence Unit, that uh, came out with a study that suggested it might be mid-2022, uh, basically said, have you seen how big Canada is? <laughs> you, know, there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot of open space here and a lot of you know, distance between point A and point B in some of these places. So, and they said the same thing you just did, that logistically it's, it's going to be a problem. It can get done, but it's going to take a little longer than people anticipated. Uh, but as you mentioned, there are others that are rolling out here too, uh, and we're thinking that one, maybe two, maybe three of these things are going to get the uh, the okay from uh, the the various uh, institutions to move forward on that. Does that change the time frame at all? Uh, I think everyone that comes on online and starts producing and distributing is going to uh, make us probably meet the target a little a little closer. Uh, but it's the it's it's the details, right? It's that old devils in the details business. Uh, we have a lot of communities, for example, for half a year. It's only a fly-in community, and and uh, that means you've got to load everything up. Team of vaccinating people up to every one of these little communities in the northern part of Ontario and Saskatchewan and so on. Uh, and so I mean, it can be done. I mean, Canada has had experience with this for mm-hmm. goodness knows how long. Not vaccination, but in reaching communities. But it's now we've got the additional problem of keeping this stuff at minus 70, which is very difficult to do. So I think this is where the other vaccines need to come in, and uh, the sooner the better. Professor, if we learned a lesson here, uh, I'll go back again at two a year ago when there were, we had the shortage of PPE and, and even had some problems buying and, and, and getting there. We all remember the problem, I guess it was last March or so, when, when uh, the U.S. government, the Trump government, tried to hold up a shipment from 3M in uh, Wisconsin, I believe it was. It wouldn't let it across the border initially. We got that resolved. But what it did is it created a PPE industry here in Canada, uh, which is still going on because we're going to need this for quite some time. Uh, we don't have that that sort of capability when it comes to producing uh, vaccines and some, things of this nature. Uh, I know, uh, but they're talking about it now too. Does, have, have we turned a corner here and decided, okay, we're not going to get caught short next time? 
Oh, Bill, you're hitting it right on the head here. You know, I, I'm a, a bit of a student of the SARS-1. I was involved in that uh -huh. in 2003. And if you read the Justice Archie Campbell's report, he wrote it in 2006, it was a stinging uh, criticism of how unprepared uh, we were, and so all the other countries in the world who were affected by SARS-1 were at that time. It's almost forgivable. We were still dealing with 1950s technology back then, you know, three-by-five cards to keep patient records and so on. But the, the big the bottom line, he said, if, if we ever in Ontario meet another uh, health crisis like this again, um, let's make sure we don't make the same mistakes. And he listed all the mistakes, hesitating to, uh, to bring in technology and testing and screening systems that aren't shown to be 100% effective. He said, well, bring them in anyway. Don't, don't leave it on the shelf just because they're not shown to be absolutely perfect. We need it. And uh, on and on and on. And the lack of preparedness for, with, with equipment. You mentioned PPE. Well, we apparently we had a large stockpile of PPE left over, and we kept adding to it. And then somebody said, well, we haven't had a pandemic for a while. Why are we keeping this? So it, it also so-called expired. I don't know what that means in terms of a mask. I don't think it does do expire. And they got rid of it and didn't replace it. There's a term in the, in the environmental assessment. It's, it's called NIMBY. You're well aware of that. Not in mm -hmm. my backyard. Yeah. But I think what we have in the, in the health risk assessment area, we have a thing called NIMTOF, which is not in my term of office. <laughs> so the, the, the foresight, the, the predictions, the preparation ahead of time is really only as far as you can see that you're going to be there as a politician in office. What about the... Uh, uh, look, look at the states. They had a pandemic response unit, and uh, it was got rid of uh, in the second year of Trump's uh, reign. Uh, we had a similar thing here in Canada. I think we need to boost that up. Well, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, Justice Campbell's report, and uh, and I know Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's in British Columbia right now, of course, was intimately involved in, in that, of course, uh, when she was here in Ontario. Uh, and there was almost a checklist that was uh, that was uh, put out, as, as you recall, that said, okay, if we do this again, we need this, 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 and this. Yep. Uh, and we, we tend to forget it. You know, a year, two years, three years, well, we haven't had a pandemic. And you're absolutely right. I, I'm, I can imagine being a fly on the wall during these discussions in, in government. You know, why are we funding this, guys? I mean, we're trying to save here. We're always worried about our bottom line. Do we really need to be making masks like this? Do we really need to be funding these, uh, these, these, these places that are working on vaccines? We don't have any pandemics anymore. Come on. Uh, and now we got caught. And, and not just Canada, but I mean, a lot of places got caught like this. Are we going to learn from this? I don't know, Bill. I, it, it's a kind of attention span. We're always talking about that in terms of kids in school. Yeah. But I think it's a, a national attention span. It's getting shorter and shorter. You know, if we can't sort of remember it, we look at the taste in our mouth. We've almost forgotten what it was. So we need to be thinking ahead a lot more. You know, they, they say you learn by your mistakes. I think in this case, so the question is, do, do at least we learn to recognize them as we see them a second time while we're making them again? Now, that's not a good situation. We need to think ahead proactively. Well, and if, if there's one lesson I hope we take away from this, it's what our experts are telling us, is that uh, there's there's a lot more opportunities here for coronaviruses to start to thrive across the world. I mean, this is this is the latest one, but you mentioned SARS. Uh, who knows what, you know, there's a, the UK variation is, is just a variation on this, but there are other ones. Uh, we would, if we if we forget this and we don't learn the lesson, I think we do it at our own peril, don't we? We do indeed, and in fact, uh, 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 sort of a professional colleague of mine, uh, Michael Osterholm, Dr. Osterholm, who's one of the leading epidemiologists in the United States at, at Minnesota, he wrote a book a number of years ago, not that far ago, a little bit before the pandemic arrived, called Deadliest Enemy. 
And for those people lucky enough to have read that book, here we have a very, uh, very knowledgeable epidemiologist who was, was saying this could happen in the next couple of years. And he, believe it or not, he, he suggested it would be a coronavirus. It would be from bats. It would jump into humans again. It would spread around the world. And, and the scenario was almost identical, what we've had. I mean, it, people have been predicting this for a long time. Uh, the EcoHealth Alliance uh, that Trump decided not to fund was a, quite a, a brilliant organization headed by Peter Daszak uh, between the United States and China. And they were working with China to study coronaviruses, but of course Trump found out that this was a, this was a, probably a, a, some, uh, you know, a, a, an evil plot of some kind. So he defunded them. But the, this, the Equal Health Alliance, was 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 predicting this kind of thing and saying, look, if this happens, this is what we have to do. And of course, it all went down the drain. Well, hopefully the lesson will uh, we learned and we remembered as well, and uh, we're going to keep talking about it and, I, I guess, hold our elected officials' feet to the fire on this. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Bill. I will say that we've never needed uh, a more neutral, evidence-informed media than we do today, and I think you guys are doing an excellent job. You're not going denialist on one side and, and sky is falling on the other. You stay that middle path. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. Professor Tim Sly, of course, from uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario government announced that uh, actually it's been reporting incorrect numbers of the number of people that have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, blaming a misinterpretation on the data. There's still a lot of confusion about this. And uh, we rely on the people that are in charge of this, of course, for uh, for some clarity as to what's going to be happening. And here in Ontario, of course, that's retired General Rick Hillier, uh, who is in charge of the program here. Uh, there was some concern by some opposition MPs uh, yesterday uh, when it uh, became known that, uh, that uh, Hillier had actually taken on another job uh, advising an Ottawa defense firm. The uh, company says it shouldn't interfere with the vaccine rollout, and some people are saying, well, can you do both at the same time? Uh, I want to bring uh, Christian Lepard into the conversation. Uh, he's a professor at Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Professor, so good to have you back on the program. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Good, good morning, Bill. I saw some of the comments from some of the opposition MPs. You know, can can Hillier do both of these things? I, I I'm, I'm assuming from his past record that, uh, that Rick Hillier can walk and chew gum at the same time. Are you concerned about about this new job uh, that that they they think anyway have an impact on his dedication to the vaccine rollout? So look, I'm sure functionally Rick Hillier is able to do both jobs and other commitments that he has. But, of course, he is the former chief of the defense staff, and so as a former senior uh, civil servant, public servant, he would know that conflict of interest is not just a material conflict of interest, it is also a perceived conflict of interest. And when you're being put in charge of so important a task as the vaccine rollout for a province of 14 million people, then I think there was always going to be a risk that this was going to be perceived by the public as a conflict of interest, and that um, I mean, the, the government of Ontario and the contract that it would have had made with Rick Hillier uh, would have stipulated um, whether he can take on other tasks and whether any other tasks need to be run by uh, the premier or the government in Ontario. Um, so there's certainly, I think, a provision likely to release Rick Hillier from that contract uh, for the province. I'm sure the government is not going to go that route. Uh, but I think it shows just how anybody at the senior, most senior levels is currently involved uh, with anything related to the COVID pandemic 
uh, to take utmost precautions. And I think given the challenges that we saw after the Christmas travel, after the Christmas period, where we had some senior representatives in the public health sector in Ontario travel and losing their jobs, I think it's unfortunate that uh, Rick Hiller, um, uh, did not take into account the perceived conflict of interest here. Well, and therein lies part of the problem. And, and like I say, I'm sure that, you know, Hillier is very capable of doing this. But as you say, perception can be reality for people. And especially in what light of what we saw this week, uh, you know, with some misinformation about vaccine rollout, I just mentioned the government themselves admitted that, you know, what we haven't vaccinated as many people as we said we did uh, because of some mathematical error, whatever the case might be. Now there's some concern about how much vaccine we're actually going to get. Uh, and, you know, what, what's, what, how much are we going to get out of each syringe? A lot of questions so far professor and and I, I guess you'd be looking and say you know rick do you really have think you have the time to do something else here this is going to require 110 percent of your attention just to get this thing done well it is all hands on deck here and i think yeah. as you point out uh, that unfortunately 10 months into this pandemic we still haven't figured out things such as for instance how we standardize um, how we standardize cases for the vaccine rollout. Uh, we still have some challenges in terms of how we're tracking cases across the province in terms of some of the back-end databases to make sure we actually have one unified centralized tracking system. That tracking system, of course, then needs to be also tied to the vaccine rollout to make sure we actually get all the people we need. Again, this is highly localized. So there's a lot of work that 10 months in, Still needs to be done that I think most Ontarians would have expected by now would have long been done. And I think part of the reason why Rick Hillier was hired is precisely to ensure that those collective action problems on the back end don't arise or at least get remedied as quickly as possible. And so I think I can understand the disappointment likely within the government, but also across Ontarians, because ultimately, if you're going to be the chair of the vaccine task force, you need to lead by example. And Rick Hillier, as the most senior former general, would understand leadership and would understand what it knows to show that leadership. And so I think it's important also to set that precedent for all public health leaders and everyone involved with the pandemic and vaccine rollout in Ontario, that everybody in those positions must lead by example, must demonstrate to Ontarians that they are not distracted by any other commitments. Professor, how would you evaluate the work that's going on with the rollout here? And I know that uh, when the United States started theirs, and of course they were a little bit ahead of us, obviously, uh, they talked about using the military there for the distribution of it, but they, there was no mention about, okay, we're going to put them in charge of it. They're simply going to be, I guess, uh, you know, the, the transporters and the ones who are going to disseminate the, uh, the, the vaccines. Uh, our government leaned on, on the military right off the bat, of course, with Major General Lafortan, of course, on the federal scene, and then Ontario hiring uh, Rick Hillier to do this. Uh, a lot of people are saying, well, why? do this is, is maybe you could explain to our listeners exactly uh, what the expertise is there that seems to be working so well at least as far as we can see anyway well i think it's become clear that public health both in ontario and federally have been treated as sort of a second tier entity that never received the attention that it deserved politically and that was simply wholly unprepared for a national emergency arising out of a biosecurity event, which is effectively what the pandemic is. And the two organizations in this country that have a failure is not an option mentality are our intelligence services and is the military. And the military can bring to bear the logistics, the operational capacity, but also the conscious capacity of transport, of some medical expertise, and bring that together in the way no other department can. And it also draws the government of liability of having to deal 
with any number of other third-party providers. So it's a nice integrated solution. The challenge is, of course, that this is not really, I think, what we want our national defense forces to be doing, in part because we want our military to be there to defend the country and do their day-to-day tasks. It's not like they don't have their hands full with other challenges. But I think we're also in a democratic civil society, we don't want the military involved in our civil affairs any more than absolutely necessary. And so we really need to rethink and make sure that we are prepared for the next biosecurity event so that we have a proper civil response capacity that doesn't require us to lean on the military to do what the regular civil service and bureaucracy should amply be able to do if they were adequately postured and adequately prepared. Yeah, we were just talking about that in the segment before you joined us, Professor, and, uh, and the fact that uh, it's not as if we didn't have uh, you know, warnings in the past, SARS and, and so many other situations in our and not too past uh, recent history uh, that indicate that we should have and, and, and probably at one point did understand that we had to start building for the possibility of something like this, and we didn't do it. And now we're just thinking we're leaning on the military simply because, uh, let's face it, elected officials over the last 20, 25 years really kind of dropped the ball on, on preparing us for something like this. And I think this is generally the challenge when it comes to security, intelligence, defense issues in Canada, whether it's strategically with China or sort of more specifically on, on challenges, whether it's cyber, uh, it's foreign interference, it's biosecurity. But I think by and large, Canadian society has had their heads in the sand with regards to the globalized world that we live in and the threats that we face. And we have not invested adequately in order to have the early warning function. Um, we know that from public debates with regards to the health intelligence early warning system that was shut down. But we have not also postured ourselves effectively to be able to respond. And we can see that other countries, um, such as Taiwan, such as Vietnam, that have a much more proactive uh, security posture, uh, with, in part because within their regions they know they can't rely on anyone else, they can only rely on themselves, have had much greater success at containing the pandemic and have had much less impact on their economy, on their societies, on individuals' mental health, on people's jobs and so forth. And so I think we really need to learn out of this experience. And my concern is that how we started this conversation with regards to balls still being dropped in terms of simple sort of data issues, tracking issues, when the senior person in charge is having distractions by other commitments, that we are still trying to build the plane while flying it. What does this do to the, and what kind of pressure does this put on the military? I mean, and because they, they, they're there uh, in times of, of danger and crisis. Look, the military, just so, so domestic operations are one of the eight missions that the Canadian Armed Forces have. And so the Canadian Armed Forces are inherently prepared and are fully able to carry out these commitments. But like any other organization, there are limited resources within the military. And so it means that there's a whole host of other things in terms of continental defense, in terms of international and regional stability, for instance, in terms of training, in terms of preparation that the military cannot be doing as a result of having committed uh, close to 22,000 people on standby for various operations related to the pandemic. And so it is a considerable draw of resources on the organization and so i think we need to be very careful when we have additional outbreaks for instance in long-term care homes in Barrie, and people are calling for the military to come back in let me assure you 
the military, just like the health, public health prof- professionals and health professionals in this province, have their hands absolutely full with their day-to-day jobs. And so they will do whatever they are tasked by Canadian mm-hmm. citizens through their political authority and through their politicians. But let's remember, everything that we ask them to do domestically are resources that are not available to assert Canadian interests um, in terms of adversaries and in terms of our broader, broader interests abroad. Well, and therein lies the problem, and hopefully the uh, elected officials are going to get that message as well. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It's been my thing. A pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Uh, Professor Christian Luprecht, of course, from Royal Military College and Queen's University. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show, uh, 980 CFPL in London, of course, 900 CHML in Hamilton. I, w- I want to get into this sick pay issue because this is a-, a big deal for an awful lot of people here in this province and right across the country, of course. Uh, the fact is is that we don't have enough paid sick leave. Uh, there are people that are going to work probably when they shouldn't be because they might be actually showing COVID symptoms, but they figure, I don't go to work, I don't get paid. i got to pay the rent. I'm already behind in this bill. It's Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You understand the crisis that's happening here. Uh, the problem here now seems to be jurisdictional. Uh, is this a federal responsibility or a provincial responsibility? Well, it's, it's come up in the legislature here in Ontario. NDP leader Andrea Horvath continues to push uh, Premier Doug Ford to get MPPs back to the legislature to pass through this work, so that the Ontario government can actually do this. But I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Uh, here's what the, the, the NDP leader had to say. I think it's it's really clear that workers are indeed being forced to have to make really an untenable choice. Do I uh, make sure I'm protecting my pay packet, the income that I need to maintain my family? Or do I choose to protect people by not going into work sick? And as uh, many, many workers in Scarborough are low-income workers, they're precarious workers, uh, they're essential workers, they're workers who can't afford to take a day off work, and they're workers that work without sick pay in our province. Andrea Horvath talking about a situation in Scarborough, but this is a province-wide problem, really a national problem. So what is going to be done about it, and, and basically who's going to address this? It's a couple of great questions, and to that end, and try to uh, find some, some middle ground here, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Ontario's Labour Minister, Monty McNaughton, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, Bill, great to be back with you this morning. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, if we could, uh, because, like I say, it's kind of like if this is your job, this is your job. But uh, there seemed to be a sense of cooperation a year or so ago between federal and provincial governments to try to coordinate some of these assistance programs. Uh, why is this one falling through the cracks? Well, uh, in fact, it's not. I mean, um, we've laid out a plan in partnership with the federal government. Um, let's go back to last March. Uh, the very first thing that uh, Premier Ford and our government did was to bring in a job-protected legislation, which told every worker in the province, if they're in self-isolation, in quarantine, uh, if they're you know, a mom or dad that has to stay home uh, with a son or a daughter because the schools are closed, you can't be fired for that. Uh, furthermore, I eliminated the need uh, for sick notes, so workers no longer have to present uh, a doctor's note. Um, fast forward uh, a couple of months, uh, Premier Ford and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, came to an agreement to provide uh, two weeks of paid sick days for workers uh, in the province. It's $500 per week. Uh, that's administered through the uh, federal government. It totals uh, $1.1 billion uh, in, in total. So that was um, the role of the provinces, was to bring in job-protected leave. And I'm giving credit to uh, the Prime Minister and to the federal government for stepping up, uh, partnering with us to ensure that uh, two weeks of paid sick days are available. 
Let's say, I, I know you sent a letter to the federal government about some of the things that uh, that you think could be, let, let's say, I'll, I'll try to be diplomatic here, could be revised in, in these policies. Uh, and one of them has to do with, uh, and this was a federal stipulation, I guess, that you'd like to see altered, uh, the requirement for workers to lose 50% of their work qual- we quali- before they even qualify for something like this, uh, which is really putting people behind the eight ball. Uh, you know, in other words, you can't take a day if you're not feeling well. Uh, you, you've got to wait and accumulate this, and uh, it's, it's causing an awful lot of problems for an awful lot of people. Uh, what are the, sh- the chances of, of actually working together with the feds once again to, to try to alleviate some of this? Because as you've seen, and you and I talked about this when you introduced your legislation, uh, the, to their credit, the, you, both yourselves and the federal government have introduced a number of these programs, Minister, and said, you know what, there's, there, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, uh, this needs to be tweaked, and you do it. Uh, but this one doesn't seem to be on that plate yet. I don't know what's going on here. I don't. Where's the, dis- the disconnect? Well, look, uh, you're right. So the the federal government and the provincial governments both have provided literally billions of dollars in supports for families, for workers, uh, for uh, small businesses uh, out there. That's why we can't afford uh, to duplicate uh, programs. But I, again, uh, I've been on the phone um, a lot with Minister Qualtrough, who is responsible for this uh, Mm -hmm. sick day uh, program uh, federally, and uh, the Premier has brought this up uh, personally, one-on-one with uh, the Prime Minister, and I believe they are uh, working to uh, improve the program. One of the concerns I heard from uh, workers in Ontario was the fact that it was taking literally weeks to get uh, payments into the bank accounts uh, from this sick day pay. Uh, but to the federal government's uh, credit, when I spoke to Minister Qualtrough last week, uh, she confirmed that 80% of sick pay uh, benefits are being direct deposited into bank accounts um, around the three-day mark. So they've made uh, improvements. They're continuing uh, to make improvements. Um, look, these are um, you know, really unprecedented uh, times. We can't afford to duplicate uh, programs. And I am proud to say that 110,000 workers in Ontario alone are actually accessing benefits through this federal program. So you're, you're optimistic that some of these changes uh, that you've outlined in the letter that you sent to the minister are, are going to be addressed. There's another one here that I know our time's tight, but I wanted you to get your read on this as well. Uh, one of the stipulations, of course, in the federal side of things is that uh, people can receive in the program, uh, the money from the program can't apply more than once. Uh, and I know I've talked to a lot. Of, if you have kids at home and they're not feeling well and you think you can't just say, hey, I did that last week. I've got to go to work now. I mean, it happens. I mean, kids are going to show symptoms. They're going to be sick. You might show symptoms. There's got to be some flexibility here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, point blank uh, told that to the uh, federal minister, and I know uh, they're looking at that. Look, it's up to all of us to ensure that um, people know that this program uh, exists. We've got an easy application uh, process, and we've got to get uh, checks in people's bank accounts as quickly as possible. Uh, that's important. One other program, and you mentioned it, Bill, um, but I don't know if people uh, realize that there is uh, a federal program out there uh, for moms and dads that are staying home uh, with their kids because schools are closed. Uh, they can receive $500 per week for 26 weeks. So there's a lot of these programs uh, in place. I think every provincial politician, regardless of a political stripe, really needs to be uh, making people aware of these programs because all levels of government truly have uh, worked in a, a really good fashion to, to bring these programs to life.
Well, and that's an important part of this. I know we had that discussion with uh, with one of your colleagues, uh, MPP Donna Skelly, uh, from this area last week about the web page that she and uh, some other folks were developing. And, and it lists everything, as you said. It's not just your programs. It's federal programs as well, because uh, that's that's important information. And you're right. A lot of the times people just don't even know where to go to look for that. So uh, we encourage that as well. So this is encouraging. This is good to know that the, the dialogue between you and the feds are, are, is going on. And uh, I guess we can look forward to some sort of changes and some tweaks and revamping of some of this stuff. Minister, as always, uh, thank you so much for this. It's great talking with you again today. Well, great to be on with you, Bill, and stay safe, everyone. You too. Take care. That's uh, Ontario's Labour Minister, uh, Monty McNaughton. Uh, and uh, apparently that dialogue is happening, as opposed to what we heard earlier in this week, that there just seemed to be a lack of communication going on between the two of them. So if you're in that predicament, as we've been describing, uh, it looks like help could be on the way sooner than later. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We spent a lot of time talking about some of these relief packages that both federal and provincial governments are putting out and uh, how necessary they are from CERB right on down. There's a whole long list of them, of course, that are available these days. However, uh, inflation has to come into play here, too. I mean, by definition, government stimulus is great. It's intended to stimulate the economy, right, and economic activity. Uh, But there could be a payback down the road for this, and I don't know that too many people are actually aware of this. Joining us to talk about this and to shed some light on this is uh, Doug Hoyes, finance expert with Hoyes, Michaelis & Associates. Uh, Doug, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us again today. Thanks for having me, Bill. You know, when we look at things economically, oftentimes we just look at the surface. We don't understand uh, the implications. And, and I'll give you an example. I think you and I talked about this a month or so ago, about the real estate market uh, in, in Ontario, but even here in the Hamilton area especially, is red hot right now. And you figure, well, that's great. That's a really good sign for the economy. But it's also making things unaffordable for people that are on the cusp in situations like that. And uh, some of the reporting I've seen about some of these stimulus packages may be actually doing the very same thing, in the, the short-term help, but in the long term putting people in a more financial precarious position yeah you're exactly right and there's this battle going on between inflation and deflation and maybe it's a battle we're not really aware of because it's kind of in the background but when you think about it naturally prices should continue to come down we should be in a deflationary world you think about it, um, you know, I remember buying my first cell phone, I think it was 30 years ago or something, and I think it cost $2,000, and I think all I could do with it was make a phone call because it was a phone. Well, now we all have a smartphone in our pocket that can make phone calls. We never use it for that. Nobody ever makes a phone call anymore. But we can do a whole bunch of other things like track our heart rate and buy stocks. And I mean, I can listen to your radio show on my phone through the, through the computer, and all of that stuff costs essentially zero. It's essentially free. I can drive my car and it connects up to these satellites in the sky and gives me directions where I'm going. That's all free. So anything to do with technology, the the prices continue to come lower and lower and lower. So why then, as you quite correctly stated, are real estate prices so high? Shouldn't, Shouldn't prices of those things be going down as well? Well, no, because, again, as you correctly stated, the government has been you know, printing money, if you want to use that term, they don't actually print it, but they've been, you know, spent, you know, giving out money. And certainly 2020 was a record year for every government. I mean, the federal government um, has supported businesses to the tune of $100 billion and CERB payments and all that is, is even more. That's all that money flooding into the economy, which has a tendency to drive prices up. It's not making things more valuable. It's just driving the prices up. It's like if you and I are playing a game of Monopoly and we've each got a hundred bucks, well, the most I can buy that property from you for is a hundred bucks. 
But if the banker comes along and says, oh, here you go, everybody can now have $1,000, well, I guess now I can buy that property in Monopoly from you for $1,000 because I've got more money. The, the value hasn't gone up, but there's more money chasing the same amount of stuff. And that's, I think, one of the big reasons why things like real estate have gone up in value. And, of course, low interest rates have certainly contributed to that. But to your point, who is that helping? Well, it's helping anyone who already owns real estate or has the ability to buy it and go through that price appreciation. If you're on the outside looking in, you're getting farther and farther behind. And that's what's happening with the, with the economy today. And, uh, well, we'll just continue the example, I guess, of real estate. I mean, we're also seeing stats that indicate that uh, uh, there were an awful lot of people in Ontario, especially over in the last year, uh, that bought vacation properties and cottages, uh, chalets, whatever the case might be. Uh, ostensibly, the excuse that a lot of them gave was, I want to get the hell out of Toronto or Hamilton or wherever it is, uh, because there's, you know, there's COVID all over the place. Uh, but the fact is, they could afford to do that. Uh, or they could afford to borrow the money. At least we hope they can afford to do this anyway, uh, which is another consequence I guess we need to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There's two different economies here, two different worlds, maybe maybe more than that. And you and I have talked about this before. If I was an office worker and when the lockdown started, I was able to redeploy from home and work from home, I'm probably better off. I'm not paying to take the GO train into Toronto every day. I'm not paying for parking in downtown Hamilton. I'm not paying for daycare because my kids are home. I'm actually better off if my salary is still the same. But if I was at the other end where I've been laid off and I'm getting perhaps EI now, which is less than what I was making when I was working, I'm actually worse off. So the person who is better off has more cash and it's like, hey, why don't I do something with it? Oh, look, mortgage rates are really, really low. I can get a mortgage for like one and a half percent or less for a five-year fixed why not take that money and buy a vacation property? Why don't I buy something in the outskirts? And and that's exactly what people are doing, of course, driving up those prices. But the person who doesn't have that money or hasn't had the wherewithal to do that is obviously now falling behind because they're looking at it going, well, how am I ever going to be able to buy real estate? I can't. The prices are just getting getting out of control. So there have been winners and there have been losers in this whole situation. Anybody who has run for public office in the last four or five years, uh, Doug, has wanted to talk about, I'm going to be the champion for the quote-unquote middle class. I, I'm going to, you know, you guys are getting left behind. There's the haves way here down here and the have-nots way down here. Uh, but you're in the middle here and you're getting stuck. Is, are these programs helping or hurting these people? I mean, obviously in the short term, you know, if you don't have any income and you got a government check, sure that helps. But f- from what you're describing, it sounds as if it's actually making things less affordable for people that are struggling and, and maybe on the cusp. Yeah, the the people at the upper end, you know, like I said, the office worker who's been redeployed from home, they're doing fine. The people at the very lower end who maybe had a minimum wage job, they were making 1500 bucks a month, well, when Serb came in, they were getting 2000 a month, they were actually better off. But the people in the middle, those are the ones who are getting crushed. So these government programs have not done as much for the middle as they've done for the upper and the lower. If I was a chef at the local restaurant bringing in three grand a month between salary and tips and whatnot, and now I'm on EI getting $1,800 a month, I'm, I'm definitely worse off. But you're right. In the short term, I don't think anyone disagrees that something had to be done. The, the government can't say we are locking you out of your 
work. You can't go to work, but you also can't have any money. So clearly something had to be done there. But the longer-term impact is, number one, a bunch of people are going to find out they got a tax bill this year from the CERB they got. And number two, if inflation does pick up, and we're already already seeing it in things like real estate, then the people in the middle or the lower end are certainly going to get left behind. And you're right. I worry that they try to stay up to date. They try to you know keep up with the Jones, Joneses by using debt to do it. And that's just a recipe for disaster long term because now you're carrying debt, which makes you really vulnerable if things too do turn the other way and now you can't repay your debt. You're you're even worse off than before. Yeah, and the, the tragic here is, is you say if things go the other way. Usually it's when they go the other way. Uh, talking about the cycles. Of, that's a discussion, I guess, for another day. We're just about out of time on this one. I just wanted people to be aware of this, and I really appreciate you taking some time to, to offer this perspective on it. Thanks so much for this, Doug. Great to talk to you, Bill. Take care. Doug Hoyes, of course, uh, with Hoyes, Michaelis, and Associates. And uh, just be wary that uh, there's always a downside to some of these things, too, and you got to make sure that you don't slip off the edge. The Bill Kelly Show continues on 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, south of the border, a lot of... Uh, finger-pointing going on about stimulus packages and, and the like. Uh, dozens of House Democrats have now sent a letter to President Biden asking the White House to push for even more cash payments. Remember, he had initially put a payment in there that the Republicans didn't want. The Republicans said, we want to break that down. We can't afford to do this, yada, yada, yada. And also, you've got the, the situation here of, uh, well, shall we say, uh, one Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, from the House of Representatives. She is a Republican, uh, and she is uh, being chastised and uh, castigated and by an awful lot of people these days, not just uh, on the Democratic side, uh, for some of the comments she's made about uh, bringing harm to Democrats and uh, carrying guns around the state house. I love a lot of things that are going on here in the Capitol building. To that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer, of course, is Washington correspondent for Global News down on the Beltway. Uh, Jennifer, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having Good. me. You're, that means you're staying clear of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess, then. Um, <laughs> What what's going on with her? I mean, okay, we know there can be extremists, but and we I remember the story you're reporting a, a little while ago. But uh, uh, you know the, the number of Republicans that didn't want metal detectors put in there. We you know when they go to work from here on in, and you wondered about that, and she was certainly one of them. But uh, she is uh, she's she's kind of got off the deep end a little bit here. But she's uh, I guess the the Trumpites uh, the 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 people that are supporting Donald Trump and supported the insurrection. Uh, she, she's their latest hero. It seems that. Well, I mean, yeah, those people really are cheering her on, but she she really is something else. I mean, she she's online, and I don't know, somehow this was missed by Georgia voters, but she was online liking posts about putting a bullet in Nancy Pelosi's head, um, you know, supporting things that QAnon says. She has, there's videos of her chasing a Parkland shooting survivor, an 18-year-old kid, and talking about her rights as a gun owner and why are you here and why are you talking to lawmakers about gun control and you're trying to take away my Second Amendment rights. And here's an 18-year-old kid, you know, who took a bullet at a school. She's also online talking about how two representatives who are Muslim took the oath of office, put their hand on the uh, Quran, <clears throat> excuse me, and saying that, they were supposed to have their hand on the Bible 
and that they're not even legally sworn in. And she's on she's online saying this. And just for the record, there is no constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to have your hand on the Bible, the, the Quran, you know, the power of positive thinking. There's you don't have to have your hand on anything. A president taking the oath of office in his inauguration, there have been four presidents in history who did not have their hand on a Bible. You can have your hand on anything or you don't have to have your hand on anything. So somehow she's made up these stories that she goes online with that these are you know illegal Congress people and and this is what they did and they hate our country and Nancy Pelosi should be killed. I mean it's just unbelievable that she is in in the House of Representatives and you know, obviously getting a lot of backlash, but there's mm-hmm. plenty of people online who support her, as you said. Oh yeah, absolutely. And she's a school shooting denier too, isn't she? Right. That's what that's what I'm saying. Like she was chasing this kid outside, I don't know if it was the Rayburn or Dirksen building, like chasing him across the street, yelling at him and being taped while she was doing it. I mean, you know, you look at it, you know, I I certainly don't want to encourage people to give her more attention than she deserves. But when you look at these videos, they're they're pretty unbelievable. And it's, it's incredible that she's, as I said, she's an elected official in this country. I, there's so many things I wanted to talk about, about the stimulus packages and about some of the executive orders, but the, the public safety issue right in the Capitol, Jennifer, seems to be front and center. I, I, I know a number of representatives, and I guess on both sides, have now asked uh, Nancy Pelosi if they can use part of the, the money, the, of course their expense account money, for security back in their home areas, uh, because they're concerned about uh, attacks on their families, on their homes, and uh, things of this nature. And then we got the other story earlier this week, uh, that you were reporting on about uh, the threat uh, from the report from the FBI, that is, that of more threats right there in Washington themselves, that more insurrectionists may be on their way. They could be planning something right there in Washington again. It's a pretty tricky place. What's the, the mindset there? Are people nervous? I think people are nervous. I mean, when the Department of Homeland Security comes out and issues an alert about domestic terrorists, in Washington, D.C., you know, this isn't something that they just, you know, do randomly. I mean, it really was pretty eye-opening. And as you said, there were a number of elected officials who are very concerned about getting on planes, going to their home offices. And these include people like Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham. Mm-hmm. You know, these are Republicans. And Lindsey Graham was, you know, he, he couldn't have been more loyal to Donald Trump. And he goes into an airport and he's surrounded by people screaming at him for not overturning or doing what he could to overturn the election. And so, yes, a number of them have asked for extra security. They have been given extra security. And Homeland Security has put his put FBI and all law enforcement agencies on high alert to be on the lookout for extremists. Because, as you know, it's the, it's the lone wolf who's, who's hard to track, you know, who's hard to stop. And, and while these buildings are locked down, you know, the, lawmakers are still out and about. And so, uh, you know, they go home to their homes in Washington, D.C. They get on planes and they go home, you know, to their states. And so they need protection because there's still plenty of people out there who want to do them harm. The other thing, i got about a minute left here, but I did want to get your read on, on what's happening, with not just with the impeachment vote, but with a few other things. Uh, the day after the insurrection on the 6th, uh, there were an awful lot of people, even on the Republican side, that were saying, okay, enough is enough, we got to do something. Uh, and a number of them, including Kevin McCarthy from the, in the House, actually blamed Trump for that. Uh, they're backtracking. They seem emboldened over the last 10 days or so. With Rand Paul's statement, uh, McConnell pa- apparently back in the fold, uh, McCarthy flew down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss and make up with Trump, so 
they, it's, it just seems as if he still has some sway and they're still very much concerned, maybe even afraid of this guy. Yeah, you know, I always tell people when they ask me about how, how is the trial going to go, this isn't about what Donald Trump did. This is about whether or not these guys can get reelected, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they take a look at their constituents. If I vote to convict Donald Trump, will it hurt me in terms of getting reelected or will it help me? And they've come, the Republicans have come to the conclusion, for the most part, it's going to hurt them. And so are they going to get 17 Republicans to turn to vote to convict Donald Trump? Absolutely not. So then the question is, do you try to do something else? And Tim Kaine, who was the running mate of Hillary Clinton in 2016, and Republican Susan Collins from Maine, are currently looking at whether or not there's something that can be used as, as in terms of censuring Donald Trump, and would that hold up constitutionally? And so, you know, whether or not they could do that, if they could censure him, and then he couldn't run for office again. But, you know, they, they're looking at something that's very tricky in terms of the Constitution. They have to get lawyers involved to see if there is something else, because if the Democrats proceed with this impeachment trial, they're going to lose. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Jennifer. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, right down in uh, the Beltway, uh, watching what's going on. And it changes almost by the hour. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.